5 will be in verses 21 to 26. Continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Today's message is entitled, Stupid Idiots. And that is an attempt to rightly translate, though not fully translate, rightly translate, though not fully translate, uh, the term raka in the text. It's actually probably a stronger term than that, but I wouldn't want to put it up on the overhead or have it on tape. We're going to learn from our king about kingdom living today and as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. It was uh, some time back in the early 90s, I was picking Peg up at the supermarket. And as I remember, I was going down the road in front of the supermarket and I put my blinker on and I slowed down to pick Peg up and someone behind me wasn't happy that I was slowing down, and they leaned on their horn. And then they pulled around me. I think they might have said something colorful out the window to me as they drove by. Peg got in the car, and I caught up with them at the red light. I uh, put the car in park. I got out of the car, went up to the man's window, and inquired why he was so concerned about getting ahead of me. He was uh, very flustered. I think he was apologetic, and I was very happy to watch him cower before my, my presence. <laughs> it was sometime after that. I was uh, coming home from work, and there was a uh, red light, and a, there was a right on red, and I was waiting to take the right, but uh, there was a good amount of traffic, and someone behind me, I can't remember if it was on the left or right behind me, decided to uh, get out in traffic ahead of me and just pulled around in front of me, cut me off, went into traffic, and went on her way. And I caught up with her at the red light. I got out of my car and went up to her window and inquired about the urgency of her turn. It wasn't quite that nice. I'm using euphemistic language. Um, But I got in the window, and this woman, again, was flustered and uh, rolled up the window on me, and I went back to my car. Shortly after that, I was driving down my street. Now, just so you know, this isn't all like in one day. This is like over, this is over a year or two, perhaps. But um, I was driving down my street. We lived in Roxbury on Mission Hill. And I was going down my street, and I was slowing down. to put, And I put my blinker on to go in my driveway. And a, a car came up behind me, driving really fast, right on my tail, and then just leaned on the horn. And I'm just pulling in my driveway. Got my blinker on. What's the deal? So I opened my door to inquire what was going on, and uh, the, the sizable young man in the driver's seat, along with his three buddies, um, that had all the appearances of gangsters, uh, and no uncertain language told me to get back in the car if I valued my life. They didn't say that explicitly. You can say it in a word or two if you know how to say it. So I closed the door to my car and pulled down my driveway, which I probably shouldn't have done, 
and they came and parked at the top of my driveway. My car uh, was a, a van, and it had tinted windows, so I decided it was best just to stay in my car and wait and see what they did. They decided not to kill me that day. Uh, they stayed for a while, then they drove off. But for the next 24 hours, I lived in fear of what would happen. They, they know where I live. And if for just for the reason of sport, they might come back. And I went through this 24-hour period of just fear and thinking, what am I going to do? I learned a bit that day about the way of anger. I learned a bit about what happens when you live by anger, when you let anger determine your actions. In some ways, God allowed me to be disciplined in that situation. I wish at that time I had known better Matthew 5, 21 to 26 and had meditated on this passage. I learned through that experience and, and I'm learning by the Word of God how to deal with anger, and walk in kingdom ways. So with that in mind, and I'm sure some of you have experiences like that, maybe not as dramatic, and maybe you're thinking right now, this guy's our pastor? Oh no, this was a while ago. God's been working in my life. But I think all of us have experiences like this. We need Matthew 5, 21 to 26. So let's go before the Lord and ask him to teach us and to change us in light of his word. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves. Lord, you give us your word. And, Lord, you've instructed us. Thank you, Jesus, so much for the Sermon on the Mount and this new way of living, this kingdom way in you. And, Lord, we need to learn, all of us need to learn about this in light of of anger and other things, Lord. So we ask you to be here with us. Help me, Lord, to serve you and serve your people. Lord, I'm not able in and of myself. I am not worthy to to share your word. But thank you for your, your blood and your life and your love for us. So speak to us and glorify your name as we look at your word and talk about it today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew 5, verse 21 to 26. Jesus has spoken about fulfilling the law, that he came to fulfill the law, and then that we, as followers of him, live, are to live to fulfill the law. So he goes on with these next six paragraphs, teaching us about what that looks like. In this first one, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. Jesus in this section of Scripture starts each paragraph by saying something like, you have heard, or you've heard that it was said. He says here, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And, and in each of these teachings, he says something like that, and then he says, but I say to you. Now he isn't in, in doing that saying, you've heard that it was said in the Scriptures. When, he's, when Jesus speaks of the Scriptures, he's, he would say, 
you've, heard, you've seen that it is written, or it is written, is how he would introduce that. What he means when he says you've heard that it was said is he's saying you've been taught this way. You've been taught this interpretation and understanding of the Old Testament. You've been taught this. You've heard this. But now I'm teaching you something different than what you've been taught. And Jesus comes not to negate the law, but to clarify and fulfill and explain and call us to obey the law. The law had been and was in many ways and still is kept in an external way, in a mere outward way. So Jesus is saying, no, it's not just about that outward way. There's something deeper here. Jesus understood that the law of God is the revelation of His character, who He is. It's a revelation of His ways, how He calls us to live, how He lives, what He is like. So the law of God is something He calls us to in relationship with Him, in response to His grace. It's always a response to His grace as we walk by faith and we obey Him. Jesus is not content to allow His people to to merely in an outward, shallow way try to fulfill the law. He wants us to embrace all that it means. He wants us to know the heart of the law and be transformed and, and see the holiness and goodness of God in His ways and wholly embrace all that it means. So He brings this teaching here to do just that, to call us to this lifestyle in Him of full obedience, heartfelt, faith-filled, grace-dependent obedience. So He cites what they've been told that that you've heard that it was said, and it is from Scripture largely what it, the statement there, that you shall not murder. The sixth commandment in Exodus 20, you shall not murder. And later on in Scripture, we see that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Genesis 9 says we are not to murder. We're not to unjustly, without due process of law, outside of God's will, to take a life. For that life is the bears the image of God. And to murder someone is to, is to attack someone made in the image of God, to sin against God ultimately. Murder is prohibited and is to be judged. But that's really only the beginning of what is meant by that sixth commandment in the judgment. Many of us think that we're doing pretty well. We really haven't murdered anybody. We're pretty good people. We, we often judge ourselves by this shallow understanding of the Old Testament of, of the Ten Commandments. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't stole, really. and haven't committed adultery. I'm doing pretty well. And, and yet, when we do that, we miss. We are dull. We miss the deeper meaning, the, the character of God, the, the call of God to faith and holy life in Him. So Jesus takes us deeper And he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus takes this prohibition and penalty for murder and takes us a step further than we might have gone. He relates murder to being angry. Now, He's not relating murder to being angry in general. He's relating murder to being angry with our brother or sister. And in particularly in a, in a destructive way where we, where we malign the person and the, 
in the image of God, that we disrespect them, that we essentially want to eliminate them somehow from the scene for the sake of our own happiness. Now, he's not saying all anger is sin, because if we read Scripture, we'll see that Jesus actually gets angry. You know sometimes that Jesus got angry? The temple, he cleared the temple, right? He was angry that the temple was defiled, that they had come in and corrupted the purpose of the temple and how that defamed his father and and hurt the people of God. So he was angry. He's angry at another time for the lack of faith of his disciples. He's even angry at death. And uh, when he raises Lazarus, there's this emotion, I think, of anger and sadness that, uh, that is going on there. So anger isn't, in general, what he's addressing. It's anger with a brother. That is destructive intent. And he's saying that that sort of anger is really, at the heart, no different than murder. And so he goes on in the passage, to, he, he really illustrates this in the passage by what he says. He says that whoever insults his brother, it says in the ESV, I think other uh, versions say whoever says raka to his brother, and, and that is an insult that is a pretty serious insult. Uh, I it's more than stupid idiot. Uh, raka is a term, it literally means empty head. Uh, it means somebody that, that is just a stupid idiot. Uh, but it's, it's more than that. It, it would take a swear word in English to kind of get the equivalent. And you're not going to hear that from me, so don't worry. Uh, it, it's a strong word. It's a strong term of derision. And it's basically saying, you're so stupid, you are worthless you're, you're worthless. You're an idiot. You're a stupid idiot. That's what raka means. And then anyone who says you fool as well. And fool, that, that has a connotation a little more like, a little more in terms of moral issues. It's, it's you loser. You good for nothing. Horses rear end. That's the sort of language that's there. Jesus is saying when you have that attitude toward other people, that is the same thing in heart, as murder. Shocking, huh? I'm sure none of you have ever thought or said any of those things. The reality is we, we have, I think, most of us at one point or another. Maybe we've not used the colorful language, but we've, we've had that. We've had deep contempt for people. We have been angry at them, and, and we've desired that they, that they not be around, that... that they could be somehow eliminated. No, no, you know, when it comes down to it, no, we don't want them murdered. But, but really, what's behind our heart? We want, them, we want them out of the picture. When we have that sort of contempt for somebody, we are, we are insulting them. We are attacking the image of God in them and saying, you are nothing. You're worthless. You don't know what you're doing. You are a worthless person. We, we do that. We do it in traffic, perhaps. When something happens, you, you have that response, and, and you're, you're basically thinking, boy, I, you are just, you're trouble on the road. I wish they'd take the license, your license away and never be around. During, uh, during the week, I drive my children to Bradford Christian Academy in the morning, uh, and that's right across the street on the campus of Zion Bible College. And there's, uh, their driveway is right at the in- intersection of Kingsbury and South Main Street. Do you know that intersection? And the driveway is just after the intersection. So it's kind of a tricky turn. Anyone, any Bradford BCA parents have trouble making that turn? Yeah, we, we uh, negotiated every morning. 
And, uh, and I don't know what it is. Sometimes I think maybe it's just South Main Street in the morning. Maybe there's just something in the atmosphere of South Main Street. But I've seen again and again and again people doing the Raqqa thing at that intersection. And some surprising people that you wouldn't expect. Now, nobody, nobody from the church that I've seen driving their kids, don't worry, I'm not going to name you. I haven't seen anyone. But just recently, there was somebody that uh, I was waiting to take the turn. And somebody came the opposite direction and, and slowed down to turn in the driveway. And they had to slow down. And the, behind, it, uh, behind this person was a, uh, somebody in a, like a mini SUV or something. And it was this woman. I, I would guess she was in her mid-60s. She, I couldn't see her well, but she looked fairly well-dressed, fairly proper. And that person slowed down to turn in. And I don't know what happened and what went on. I mean, there was no skidding or anything, but this woman leans on the horn. Uh, this proper woman in her 60s leans on the horn, and the car turns in. She leans on the horn, drives by, and starts double-pumping the bird to the people as she's going down the street. And I was just like, whoa. You guys have never done anything like that, though. Never. What is it about a car that makes us turn from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. Is there something? Is there, are there fumes that come up through the, the dashboard? Is it the vinyl kind of breathing, you know, and the, the fumes of the vinyl that somehow bring out Mr. Hyde? I don't think so. It's the Massachusetts place. <laughs> Move to... <laughs> Spoken by someone from New Hampshire. So, Yeah. <laughs> well... I think it's that Mr. Hyde is inside all along, and it's the anonymity of the car, and maybe some other things going on, I don't know, that brings it out. Boy, that is one place we see this sort of behavior, this sort of anger. And if we think about it, if we look at humanity, what really keeps us from murdering? Now, yeah, there's good motives that do, and I'm not negating that, but, but think about the phrase that, Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's a phrase used. Um, it's not necessarily in the Bible, but there are truths that are related to it, biblical truths. But, but that's a phrase I think that is fairly accurate. Why? It's because when you have power, when there are, is no fear of repercussion for your actions, when, when the fear of the consequences are no longer, is no longer there for, for us, when you have absolute power, you do what you want and nobody deals with you. With you. And there's not any retribution, at least you don't think there is. And when there isn't that, those, that external restraint on us, people do crazy things. So why do dictators, the evil dictators we read about, why do they do what they do? Are they all that different from us? I don't think so, at least not to start. The difference is they have power. And when someone cuts them off in traffic, they can have them beheaded. They don't just say, stupid idiot. They don't just let it smolder because they know they can't really do anything about it. They do something about it. And so we hear of these horrible purges and these horrible things done by evil dictators because they have the power to do it. Take away that fear of repercussion and all sorts of things can happen. So when Jesus says someone who's angry with his brother is subject to judgment just like a murderer would be, there is ground for it. 
because the heart is very much akin to a murderer. It's really something. His teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't leave wriggle room for us. We can't go out of here hearing Matthew 5 thinking, well, I'm pretty good. I never murdered anybody. Have you been angry with your brother? Have you spoken derisively, disrespectfully to another? It's really not that different from the heart that murders. And he says that the one who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. Just as a murderer is subject to judgment, just as in the Old Testament there is the call for someone who murders to be tried by a judge and perhaps a panel to be tried and dealt with in the Old Testament for premeditated murder prescribes the death penalty to deal with this horrible crime. Just as there is that, the one who is angry with his brother is as well subject to judgment. Now, Jesus isn't saying that if you that if you are angry with somebody, the Haverhill police should pull you over and you should show up in Lawrence Superior Court, court that the woman who did did the double pump bird thing should be pulled over and subject to judgment like that. So the judgment is not a judgment like there is for murder, a judgment of the courtroom, but it is the judgment of the courtroom of God. God Himself sees the anger in the heart. And the one who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. God presides over all people and brings judgment on murderous hearts, whether or not they actually carried out the murder. And if that anger towards a brother is persistent and unrepentant, it results in eternal judgment as well. And Jesus means eternal judgment here, and I believe He means temporal judgment as well. That God the Father presides over all things, and if we live by anger, He will bring judgment temporally, and if unrepentant, eternally. We may profess Christ as our Savior and Lord, but if anger defines our life, if anger is our way of life, we should not have any hope that we are saved from our sins. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. So this is a warning for all of us. And we see the reality. We see the reality of His temporal judgment on anger, don't we? Those who live that way, those who live by anger, Reap destruction. So the, the young father who thinks he can stop at red lights and rebuke people for dissing him has a carload of gangsters park at the top of his driveway and lets him feel what it is to live by anger. The woman who honked and made some gestures, I'm sure did not have a very good day after that. How many serious accidents are the result of road rage? How many homes are destroyed through the anger of a parent or a child? How many relationships are damaged by anger? How many churches are blown apart by ungodly, vindictive anger? The consequences of anger and this sort of murderous heart are all around us. And not only in the outward things, not only for those that are outwardly angry, do we see consequences? But there are consequences for those that are inwardly angry. Some of us, in our anger, are outward with it. And you know right away. Some of us are inward. We hold it in. And it's no better. 
held in or expressed. It's best brought to the Lord, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But there are those of us who hold it in, thinking that that somehow is better. And what results from that? Things like depression, suicidal thoughts, self-destructive actions, isolation, bitterness, heart attacks, suppressed immune systems, on and on and on the list goes. The one who lives by anger, who is angry with his brother, is subject to judgment just in God's governing of creation. And what comes as he's over things as a result of living this way? There are consequences for ungodly destructive anger, temporal and eternal. We need we need the Lord and because of the seriousness of this, if we, if we choose to live by anger, because of the judgment that comes, Jesus says what He says in the second part of this passage. He says, So, in light of this, in light of the seriousness of the judgment, because of what happens, because of what results from this, because judgment looms over the angry person, Judgment looms over the one who insults and derides his brother or sister. Because of this, we must act quickly and decisively because of the seriousness. So he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying, if you are coming into the temple, the holy place, if you as a believer are coming into the temple, the holy place, and and there in the inner courts, the holy place, where where you come soberly before God, where you come and remember the sacrifice for sin, and as you come to worship Him and enjoy Him, this sacred place that is never to be entered into casually or flippantly, If you are in this sacred place and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. As important as that place is, as much as that place calls for sober sober worship, you are to leave your gift there and go. Get out of there. Hightail it out of that place and go and be reconciled to your brother. That's how serious anger and the judgment that falls is. If you remember when you are there on the, at, at the altar, you are to drop your gift in that place that, that calls for holy reverence. You are actually to leave your gift there and turn around and get out of there and go to your brother and be reconciled. It's interesting, Jesus, in this passage, he, he talks about anger and then the judgment and how serious that is. And then he kind of turns the table in the second part. He says, so, if you're offering your gift, and you recognize that someone else is angry against you, you go to that person and be reconciled. The second part is he says if you recognize that there's an accuser, someone else that's not a brother necessarily, who is angry at you, go deal with that as well. Both those solutions are, the tables are turned because now it's it's not the angry one who does something, it's the one who's the object of anger. I think what he's saying in that is that this stuff is so serious that even if you are the one who someone's angry at, for their sake, for God's glory, 
do something about it quickly. How much more if you are the angry one towards a brother or sister or towards someone outside the church? Are you to deal with it quickly and decisively? Now, I want to be careful with this. We take Scripture in its whole context. And there are times when someone is angry with us and we have sought to deal with it and they're still angry. Jesus isn't saying that you're responsible for that case. We know that because Jesus had a lot of people angry at him, didn't he? And they were so angry at him that they killed him. Jesus sought to do right and as far as possible live at peace. Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But there will be times when you won't be able to live peaceably with others. So he's not saying that it's on you to work it all out. But as far as is possible with us, as far as reasonable and scriptural and possible, we are to seek to resolve fully and quickly when others are angry with us. So that qualifier is important, but let it not diminish the urgency that Jesus brings to us to deal with anger quickly and decisively. So the first scenario is the the place of worship with the brother or sister. And I I know for me, and I hope that you don't think I'm this really angry person all the time, but I'm sharing some of the instances for me many, many times. I've been here on a Sunday, in church on a Sunday, and we start singing, and God convicts me right at that point. How can I come before the Lord when I have offended another? And often, sadly, it's my wife who I've offended. There's been an argument, a conflict right before worship. Anyone ever have one of those? Yeah? One of those arguments, as Betsy talks about. A argument is an argument in the car on the way to something, which is Betsy's phraseology, which is great. Anyhow, I've had arguments. And, and many times, just have in that time of, of coming before the Lord, thought, how can I come before the Lord right now? And just turned to my wife and said, I'm sorry how I talked to you. That was, that was unkind. That was sinful. And not, it's not trying to figure out who, who owns what portion of the blame at that moment. We're never to do that, actually. Well, at least not initially, right? We're, we come with, there's plenty of blame for me to take at those moments. And Sunday, uh, many Sundays for me, just been there and thought, how can I worship the Lord without reconciling with my wife and just confess to her. She's not here, but she would definitely confirm that all too frequently. That's what Jesus is getting at. But even more than that, certainly with our spouses, our children, uh, but any brother or sister, as you come before the Lord, the Lord considers this so urgent that He says, don't even worry about staying here. Leave your gift and hightail it out of here. Go and be reconciled to that brother or sister as far as you are able. That is the importance. He also talks here, he goes on next in the section, saying, come to terms quickly with your accuser. So now the words go from brother to accuser. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I'll say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. So not only with a brother or a sister, but anybody really who has an offense against you, you are to deal with it because... The judgment and the consequences that fall, follow from anger are serious and destructive. 
And if you let it go, if you let someone's anger smolder against you, even though you may think you're right, if you do not seek to resolve that, it's only going to get worse. And if you think you can somehow get out of this thing without some sort of effect, you're wrong. So as far as you can, reconcile with your accuser on your way to the court before the lawsuit is in place, before the anger gets step to step 10, when it's at step 2. Simply say, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry. I saw this, I've, I've seen it in other people. I, uh, I saw this a couple summers ago. I was with, uh, I don't think you'd mind me saying, Dominic Benvenuti. And we were doing tubing on the boat and uh, pulling the tube behind the boat on the Merrimack. And, and uh, there was someone who had a house there, and we were making waves in their boat, and he wasn't too happy. He got in his little whaler, and he came out, and he was ready to fight. And sadly, my attitude was like, Dominic, don't, don't give in to this guy. We have every right to do this. I didn't say that, but I'm thinking, and there's, there's three of us here, so don't worry. I mean, I wasn't quite that bad, but I just, I didn't have it. And Dominic, you know what Dominic did? I think because he, he deals with unhappy customers as a manager. He right away just said, you know what, I'm sorry, you're right. I shouldn't be doing that. And it was the end of the conflict. The guy went away, he was fine. Dominic applied this passage here. And that's how we are to live. We are to come to terms quickly before it escalates. Deal with it. Because Jesus says this stuff is bad. There is judgment that follows. And if you live this way, ultimately there's, there's eternal judgment. So deal with your accuser quickly. Because if you don't, you will have the repercussions that could be very serious. You could be in jail until you pay the last penny. And in those days, when you got sued, if you didn't have the money, you went to jail until you could pay the money, which kind of doesn't make sense because how are you going to pay the money when you're in jail? But that's how they did it. It was bad. Now, we don't have that, but nevertheless, we are to deal with things quickly. Wrapping up. On an autumn day in 1878 in the beautiful hills of northeastern Kentucky... Let me put the last slide up. Old Randall McCoy went to visit his relative, Floyd Hatfield. And he spotted a pig on Floyd's farm. He thought that pig was his own. He called Floyd's attention to it. Floyd said, no, it's my pig. Old Randall said, no, it's my pig. There were words exchanged and they went to court over the pig. Preacher Anne's Hatfield, all these people are related. Preacher Anne's Hatfield, who was a believer, I looked up this guy, he was a, a primitive Baptist pastor. He ruled in favor of Floyd on the testimony of Bill Statton, a man with connections to both families. And the McCoys weren't happy with that ruling. And you guys know the rest of the story the Hatfield McCoy feud. After 13 years, and 13 brutal deaths or more, the, the feud was finally settled by the U.S. Supreme Court. All because of a misplaced pig. Couldn't Randall just have said to Floyd, go ahead and keep the pig, no problem, we'll figure it out later. Couldn't Floyd just said, hey Randall, you have the pig, you're my second cousin anyhow, you take the pig. Couldn't they just maybe had a pig roast together? And they could have had preacher Anne's come in. Instead of Devil Vans, which was the guy that led the Hatfield 
clan, whose devil hands, who, who led them in their retribution. And later came to Christ, by the way. But preacher, they could have had preacher hands come to the pig roast and just talk about biblical reconciliation and not living by anger and saying, guys, this is great. Deal with it before your accuser takes you to court. Deal with it now. Instead of having this feud we could have had, we have a pig roast together. And now we can have a family reunion. Now they do actually have a Hatfield-McCoy family reunion. Why not back then? If they had walked the truth of Matthew 5, we would not have the Hatfield-McCoy feud in our vocabulary. That's what Jesus is talking about. If the band could come up as we close. Jesus calls us to this sort of lifestyle. And left to ourselves, folks, the sad reality is is we would live by anger. There's something about anger that makes us feel like we can deal with life and situations. It's empowering. And yet it all can be so sinful when it's misdirected and done wrong. We couldn't, apart from God's grace, live according to this. But Jesus has come and He's offered us forgiveness and new life. And we can choose at those moments of temptation to place our faith not in ourselves and our ability to, with anger, take care of the situation, but in the Lord. And to remember that we have been forgiven. And if anybody should be angry at somebody... God should be angry at me for my sin. And yet, He sent His Son for me, for my sin. And He died in my place so that God did not have to be angry with me, but could welcome me in as His child. And right now, as I'm tempted with that person who just cut me off, I'm remembering what Christ did for me and how I've been forgiven and how He is my Lord. He's with me right now and gives me power to forgive and to love to obey the Sixth Commandment. That's how we do it, as we depend on Him. The call is to deal with it urgently and quickly, decisively. As we close, as we think about the Hatfield-McCoys, are there any situations in your life that you need preacher Anns to come in and give you some instruction on truth? Is there a brother or sister who is angry with you and you have not tried to reconcile? Is there a spouse, a child, a parent? Is there a coworker or a neighbor? And you're letting the feud continue. Consider Matthew 5. There's also some excellent material from Ken Sandy, his peacemaker material. I think we have some of it in the library, and we will get you more. Excellent material on these principles, how to walk out reconciliation. Talk with others about it. Talk with your care group members if this is the case. Let them come alongside and pray with you and for you. And I would be glad to meet with you, talk through it, and pray for you. Maybe you just want to grab someone who you know and trust to come alongside right now and pray with you. Jesus says this is serious stuff. We must deal with it quickly and fully. We are to come to terms quickly with our accuser, to leave our gift there on the altar and be reconciled as we trust in Him to deal with anger and fully obey the Sixth Commandment. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for just the beauty of Your call here, the fullness of Your holy command to us. And we want to walk in these things. And Lord, we're weak. We need Your strength in Your life. And we pray, Lord God,
that you would help us. You would remind us about your death and life for us that we might not be angry but forgive and to love in your name and thus obey the sixth commandment, fulfilling the law all by grace, all by you. And may your kingdom come, Lord, as we walk in these holy ways. May others see the light and sense the salt. And may you be glorified, we pray. Amen.